This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along, uh, February 24th, 2023. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, half past four in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London, 9 p.m. in Paris, 10 p.m. in Kiev. I'm getting better, but I still can't do it. 10 p.m. in Kiev. Where Boris Johnson is promising war without end. The 11th hour in Moscow, the 11th hour and a half in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran to check out the half hour time zone, 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter hour time zone, 4 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers, 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne, 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning in Auckland, and lunchtime beyond in His Majesty's Dominion's across the Pacific, and wherever you are on this turbulent earth, this is Mark Stein back with you for the next 60 minutes or so for another Clubland Q&A. Today is uh, Independence Day in Estonia, commemorating the Declaration of Independence issued in Tallinn on February 24th, 1918. Independence from Russia, that is, both the collapsed Russian Empire and the new Bolsheviks, who had scarpered uh, Tallinn uh, the previous day, February 23rd. So the 24th was a good day to declare independence, except that the following day, February 25th, troops of the German Empire marched in. Uh, so the 24th was the only day Estonia was uh, free from foreign occupation, but it was enough time to proclaim an independence day that is celebrated to this day, we have listeners and viewers and club members in Estonia, and we treasure them. Uh, at least one of them we've had as a guest on the show. So it's 10 p.m. in Tallinn, and we wish our Estonians a happy final two hours of Independence Day. Do we have any Estonians on the Mark Stein cruise? I certainly hope so. We have Alexandra, Ava, Leilani, Dominique, Mr. Snurdly, John O'Sullivan, Michelle Bachman. So if you're an Estonian who fancies uh, shooting the breeze with John and Michelle in the piano bar, book now at MarkSteinCruise.com. I did three telly shows last week, so we're ramping up the production schedule, but cautiously because I'm suffering terribly uh, from exhaustion. 
and I don't want to restart and have to go away again. You have no idea how haggard I look before our hair and makeup ladies, Christiana and Carly, work their magic. I was sorry to hear that Bernard Ingham uh, died today. Uh, Sir Bernard was Mrs. Thatcher's press secretary for her entire 11 years as prime minister. Uh, so she's not, he wasn't like these ones you have at the White House now who do six months a year and then go off to cash in with a big CNN contract or whatever. Bernard did 11 years and would have done another 11 were it not for the defenestration of Maggie. After that grim event, he appeared on telly with me a couple of times on David Frost's show at TVAM. Frost on Sunday. Bernard, lovely to see you. Super. Um, I remember once uh, we talked on air about beards, to which Mrs. Thatcher was famously antipathetic. She stared disapprovingly at mine on several occasions. According to uh, Sir Bernard, it was because all beards reminded her of Captain Haddock in Tintin. Uh, Bernard was always good company, dead at 90. Rest in peace, Bernard Ingham. Uh, Let's get to your questions. You know how this thing works. Any one of the 8 billion people on this planet is free to listen to this show. You only need to be a Mark Stein Club member to ask me a question. And we have had a lot of new members this week, as we did last week and the week before. So I hope our newbies will want to go ahead and uh, toss me a head scratcher. Let's get to it. John Fatchy says, Hello, Mark. World War seems to be on the agenda for the elite puppet masters. We clublanders seem to take global calamity for granted. We certainly see very few with real political power standing up for our interests. I see none outside of America. Inside America, there seems to be uh, less than 10, possibly less than five who say what we want to hear. What, in your opinion, is actually preventing Klaus Schwab and Chairman Xi from steamrolling us all? Is there more power in the masses than we realize? Are there an army of Jack Bowers defending us on the margin The elite are afraid of something and hence are revealing a weakness, whether or not we can see it. Can you see it? Well, um, that's a big, that's the big picture question. I don't know whether there are uh, uh, viable politicians who say what we want to hear. If they do say it, uh, they're usually uh, smashed down and punished for saying it. We've, We've seen that. Uh, lately, I actually we've just seen it today with uh, three Canadian members who agreed to meet with a certain member of the European Parliament, and then uh, their boss leaned on them uh, to regret having met with her and to apologise for it and distance themselves. The thing is, this we're in a the difference between now and the I was talking about the Bolsheviks a century ago. The difference now is the permanent surveillance state. The difference now is that basically every citizen is walking around with an electronic ankle bracelet in the form of his telephone, which tells the state where you are at any second of the day. We have cars, as I often recount from my adventures on the Hungarian-Ukrainian border, that know where you are and can switch off the car if you're going somewhere they don't want you to go. So we live in very... We're not, it's not a time for 
uh, talking about uh, how you know the uh, they did it with uh, in the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the Russian Revolution, because it's going to be a lot more difficult uh, when the state knows exactly who you are, what you do, and this is before they've introduced the digital currency and all the rest of it. Um, so when we talk about Klaus Schwab and Chairman Xi. Uh, steamrolling us all, they're playing a long game. You know, Klaus Schwab founded uh, what he called, I think at that time, the Western European Management Forum, which sounds totally boring, in 1971. So if somebody says, oh, darling, why don't we go to Switzerland? Uh, I've got an invitation to the Western European Management Forum. Are you out of your mind? I'm not going to spend my holidays at the Western European Management Forum. But and the, the, I think it was the second meeting they had the first politician uh, speak at it. And it was the, uh, if I've got this right, the Prime Minister of Luxembourg. Well, whoop-de-doo. But he played a long game, Klaus Schwab. So here we are. He's still chairman of this thing. But uh, in the 1980s, he changed the name to the World Economic Forum because he'd gotten more ambitious by then. Then you have Chairman Xi. Uh, the Chinese also take the long view. They take such a long view that they reckon they don't care about, oh, the American century or whatever Marco Rubio's babbling on about. They don't even care about the two-century Anglo-American imperium since the Battle of Trafalgar. They don't even care about the... Uh, they do... Well, they do. They care about the half-millennium of freaky, weirdo, Euro-American dominance the last 500 years. And they think that's coming to an end. We, in the meantime... Now we're in for the stage of the electoral cycle I absolutely loathe in the United States which is all the bollocks about personal biography. So if you have the misfortune to live in New Hampshire, it means the only ads on your TV, you don't, you're not a chance of seeing a self-lubricating catheter or a my pillow ad. Uh, you've just got, you know, these moist, soft focus, personal bioid suns rising on a new American century while some blathering nincompoop uh, who's uh, who's who's uh, connected to Goldman Sachs and all the rest of the things pretends, you know, to be some horny handed son of toil. We never talk about this. Is, this, in case you haven't noticed, is why I've been replaced on GB News. Uh, by the Lord President of His Majesty's Privy Council. That's how, you know, controlled opposition they are. They don't want you widening the conversation to talk about anything that matters. Now, uh, is there more power in the masses than we realize? It's the only power left. Uh, and we won't have it for much longer because uh, by some estimates... Your mileage may vary. 40% of all jobs on the planet are going to be gone by 2030. 40% of all jobs on the planet. Now, what are those 40% of workers suddenly and permanently laid off going to do? Because they're being replaced by automation. Are they just going to slumber on the couch and watch crap on telly? Uh, about Harry and Meghan or whatever it is? Or are they going to get antsy and be resentful at their lot in life. Now, uh, you don't hear a lot of chit-chat about that, certainly not on GB News anymore. Uh, you don't hear it on CNN. But you can bet. Now, you think about what these guys say at Davos, out 
open. You know, when Klaus Schwab says, no one will be safe until everyone is vaccinated. When you think about Tony Blair saying, we've, all, we've got to have digital identity because uh, of all these new vaccines they want to shoot into us, so they need digital identity to know who of us, which of us have signed up for the shots and all the way. You think of the things they say out loud. And then imagine the cocktail conversation after hours. So things like 40% of all uh, jobs being replaced by automation by 2030 and what you do with the masses weighs heavily on their mind. So if, if the masses are going to do anything about this, if the, the masses are revolting, as revolting as they are, uh, they've got a very small window of opportunity in which to act and that is why the politics just bores the bloody pants off me, because we're never talking about anything that matters. And uh, the trivia of politics day to day, the trivia and the shallowness of it uh, is so stonkingly brain crushing uh, that you have to grasp, as you surely do, that it's deliberate. Hi, Mark, says Ali M. Ali M. Like Ali Oop. Ali Oop. What, what was that? I haven't heard Ali Oop on the radio uh, for uh, several decades. Anyway, Ali M. says, Hi, Mark. I love all your recent shows and the Q&A, too, of course. You mentioned war without end, that the Uniparty in the U.S. would like to see this ensuring uh, continuing cash flow for the military-industrial complex, which they also personally benefit from. My question is, will China and Russia play along? We know this conflict has already depleted Russia's resources, militarily and otherwise, and now they are turning to China as the US and NATO ramp up the proxy war. How do you think China will react? Thanks and stay well. This arises, I think I just... Uh, put it uh, with our, the notice of our Clubland Q&A, these <laughs> ludicrous stories that Boris Johnson, who has been as comprehensive a failure as prime minister as it is possible to imagine one being, and the country is a wreck, but that's no obstacle to him being tipped, quote unquote, tipped as the next secretary general of NATO. NATO uh, is a post-Second World War alliance that has wholly outlived its uh, usefulness, except for the uh, military-industrial complex that Ali M mentions. So uh, what they want is something like Afghanistan worked out swell for them. It didn't work out great for a lot of other people, not for all the NATO soldiers who were killed in Afghanistan or who were crippled in Afghanistan. It didn't work out that great for Afghan women. Uh, but it worked out swell for the military industrial complex. Uh, the war was won, you know, in uh, the autumn when... Uh, the Taliban, autumn 2001, when the Taliban scuttled out of town. And the only thing they did wrong was that some stupid jag, that's a military lawyer in Florida, uh, refused to allow the guys who had Mullah Omar in uh, their sights the opportunity to drone him and teach the lesson that you mess with the great Satan, he gonna get you. 
And then they could have all come. If they droned uh, Mullah Omar on the first night, they could then all have come home and said, uh, don't make that mistake again, Afghan. And then they made other. Once it became an occupation, they made other mistakes because it's not something America does well. So they didn't put kings of here back on the throne and various other mistakes. But there's no point going into that now because it was gangbusters for all the people who matter. So this is the problem that the Pentagon is a racket. That's not a that's not a disparagement of all the guys who sign up to serve their nation honorably. But they're not the ones making the call on these things. And uh, likewise, the guys making the call on Ukraine figure that the longer this runs, the better it is for everybody. Ukraine is a great big swamp of corruption. It's full of fabulous looking women. I personally liked the majority of people I met in Ukraine. But the, uh, the, the, the declaration that there can be no nego as I've, I said this at the start of this thing, that Ukraine is a bit like Ireland. Ireland is a country in which some people feel Irish and British, and some people just want to feel Irish, and they don't want the British bit getting in the way. And Ukraine is like that, that uh, Ukraine has people who feel Ukrainian, but it also has people, particularly in certain parts of the country, who feel both Ukrainian and Russian. And that is historically true. So the idea that you can, dem for, for a start, when you say uh, Russia's resources have been depleted, Russia was supposed to be gone. Putin was supposed to have been overthrown by now. Remember all those sanctions they imposed a year ago? Oh, yeah, we're going to bring Putin to his knees. For a guy who's on his knees, Putin is looking pretty good. And yet at the same time, they want this thing to stagger on and on and on because it suits their purposes. And we don't really know why. Um, Ava Vladingerbroke and I talked about this when earlier in the week when we were musing on Liz Truss's warnings about the new world order. You can the real new world. order. You know, Putin is drenched in blood. She is drenched in Uyghur body parts. He's up to his neck in them. These are, these are not guys you would want moving next door and dating your daughter. So let's stipulate that just to get it out of the way. But that said, they think as the leaders of conventional sovereign nation states prosecuting their interest very clear-sightedly, which is one reason why Russia has managed to survive three decades of wretched demographic decline and all kinds of lousy social indicators, and why China has managed to take over the world without firing a shot. And that's how it wants to do it. It's a much more effective way than the stupid Pentagon shock and awe. Look at us, baby. Look at, look at the size of my smart bomb, baby. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to smart bomb you and then take 20 years uh, to lose to your cousins, the inbred goatards. You know, they act, the new, what's new about the new world order is not thugs, authoritarians, dictators, strongmen, 
who have always been around throughout human history and occasionally do crazy things that oblige their less psycho neighbors to rouse themselves and act against them. That is, that is, that has gone on throughout human history. But the new bit about the new world order is the Western democracies who have totally insane... Ava and I talked about it. You know, Putin knows what a woman is. Chairman Xi isn't taking Chinese schoolgirls who come to school a bit confused one morning and and suddenly think that they want to be boys. Uh, He's not the one saying, "Okay, we've got to cut your breasts off and pump you full of drugs that will make you sterile and infertile. You know, the new bit of the New World Order is coming from the West and Western world. George Pereira writes, Mark, this is probably old news by now, but it appears that the U.S. military powers uh, that have decided, have decided to filter out balloons from their collective radar sets. Our skies have always been filled with balloons. Army, Navy, Air Force... <laughs> Spy balloons, very big before satellites, weather balloons, amateurs, and whoever else. Yeah, I, I used to run Old Home Day in my uh, little New Hampshire town. I didn't run it. That makes me sound like the Putin of Old Home Day in New Hampshire. Uh, but I was on the committee and had uh, various tedious things to do. And one of them I used that I used to do was to uh, get a guy in town who had a hot air balloon and he used to come and tether his uh, hot air balloon on the village green. And then he would, uh, you know, for whatever it was, I don't know, five bucks, whatever it was. And then he you would get in the balloon and then the balloon would go up in the air and you'd be able to look at your small town from the sky, which in that pre-drone age, very few people able to do. Now, I wouldn't do that now because I wouldn't want the United States Air Force coming along and firing that sucker to kingdom come. Uh, as uh, as uh, as uh, George continues, the very idea that someone besides the U.S. might use balloons as aerial spies was discounted. Who made these decisions and how long the filters have been turned on is unknown. What else is being filtered out? Small planes, gliders, UFOs, alien invasion fleets, drug running cartel aircraft, uh, no doubt flying into Mena, Arkansas. It looks like since at least the 50s, The military has not scanned the skies and kept America safe. The U.S. military failed. Once again, nothing works. Yeah, you're you're quite completely right, George. I I think it comes as a shock because the the United States military always commanded huge respect, mainly because of the guys who go off and serve in it, service, serve in it, and then they come back from these endless unwon wars, crippled, uh, and people no longer, you know, people, oh, thank you for your service. People say thank you for your service because the mission was a bust, because the mission was poorly conceived. Now, when you look at what they've done, you look at how it went in Korea, in Vietnam, in the helicopters in the desert, in Gulf War One, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, then you have to say, uh, when it comes to defending the homeland, are they likely to be any more serious and any more credible? And here is the thing. You know, we were talking about all the people who are going to be out of work because of automation. Um, 
the United States Chamber of Commerce and, and big business decided they were going to transfer American manufacturing uh, to China about 30 years ago. And uh, as we know, the uh, Chinese were going to get all the stuff that, uh, you know, making cheap T-shirts, making cheap shoes, making cheap crockery. And we were going to become the knowledge economy. And then at some point, it became clear that China had snaffled the knowledge economy, too, and made all the computers and smartphones. And so you think, well, that just leaves cheap service jobs, like doing the night shift at the quickie crap. The jobs, by the way, they're going to be made obsolete by technology. So the business community, uh, and, and incidentally, this is quite a formal arrangement. Um, businesses, American businesses that do business in China basically have to agree to let the Chinese in on all their little uh, commercial secrets. Now, you're crazy if you think uh, a business community, in fact, a United States government willing to do that, willing to transfer its entire manufacturing base uh, to China, wouldn't also be willing to transfer all its military secrets to China. So this idea, again, too many people are on the take. Just in the Biden family, Joe Biden's on the take. Jim Biden's on the take. Hunter Biden's on the take. There may be all kinds of other Bidens that I haven't yet heard of. Who on the, his second cousin, Gaylord Biden, may be on the take. Uh, Peregrine Biden may be on the take. Fauntleroy Biden may be on the take. I don't know all the Bidens. But the Bidens I do know are all on the take. And that's replicated in families all across the United States and the Western world. And, and the idea that there are institutions in the West that would be sealed off from that is really quite a long shot. Frank Gallenstein or Frank Gallenstein says, Hi, Mark. I read an editorial on Ukraine this week in the Wall Street Journal, authored by Boris and Graham Nesty. That's, uh, that would be my old spectator chum, Boris Johnson, and Lindsey Graham, who isn't a chum of mine, but he is a chum of Sean Hannity. Is he on? Is he still on Sean's show <laughs> every uh, every uh, th three or four nights a week uh, on, on Hannity, on uh, Fox? I, I, I remarked on this somewhere or other, and, um, <laughs> and uh, Mead, uh, the, the magnificent uh, senior executive vice president in charge of primetime, uh, called up my agent to rebuke me on calling out Hannity for having Lindsey Graham on three or four nights. If you're having Lindsey Graham on three or four nights a week, you know, again, that's the definition of control opposition. He's got some medal from Ukraine. There's a picture we posted of him being honored, you know, with some the most prestigious medal in Ukraine. Uh, anyway, Frank says, now there's a pair, Boris Johnson and Lindsey Graham. I really don't know what to think about what the U.S. should be doing about Russia, the Russia-Ukraine war presently. Stopping it from happening in the beginning was the way to go if possible. And I suppose that might have happened had Trump 
been in office. Regardless, where do we go from here? Our current administration won't stop China from further interference if it were possible. It seems to be a quagmire. Your thoughts going forward? Well, a quagmire is incredibly profitable. Uh, for these people, as we were discussing, a quagmire in which Russia in which Russia stays but can't win. Look at the sums of money that they and no one knows what it's being spent on. I mentioned that uh, assassination of some oligarch's daughter in Moscow that they seem to think the Ukrainians had their fingerprints on. I mentioned some of the explanations for who did what. Uh, with the Nord Stream pipeline, you know we're giving we're giving uh, the Ukrainian military. Well, we're not giving it to the military, are we? We're giving it to to Zelensky. Who the hell knows what he does with it? There's no actual accounting of it, uh, so it can be going on anything. He's got a very nice beach house in in Florida, but he might find that what with the war and everything, he needs a closer beach house. So perhaps. He's uh, bought a beach house on the Italian Riviera. The fact is, when you're giving these sums of, you know, Boris is an interesting person because when Boris started talking about Winston Churchill, I sort of assumed, uh, you know, that the the um, the the, the comparison, the implicit comparisons between him and Churchill were just some ludicrous joke because Churchill was the indispensable man. Had Churchill become prime minister and decided to sue to settle the Second World War with Herr Hitler in Berlin before the Americans got in, that was the hinge moment of the 20th century. The entire post-war period would look totally different. Uh, And so when Boris used to sort of make these comparisons between himself and Churchill... (laughs) <laughs> I assumed, like the rest of us, he knew it was a complete joke. But the business with him, he's out of office now, uh, but he's hes jetting into Ukraine and he's jetting over to the US uh, still to ramp up the war. Uh, because in some strange way, he's figured, as Lindsey Graham's figured, that permanent war, let's face it, when there's no war, Lindsey Graham is a very curious fellow. He believes in boots on the ground everywhere for the U.S. military, everywhere except the U.S. border. So there's boots on the ground in... What was it? There was a some jihadist incident in... Was it Chad? Mali? And he was calling for boots on the ground immediately in Chad or Mali, wherever the hell it was. And it turned out there already were boots on the ground there because it's actually getting hard to find a country on Earth where there are not American boots on the ground. Uh, and as and what the hell has it done for us? It's except deliver the world to China. So it's it's so when there's no war, but that's how he is. When there's no war, who the hell cares what? Uh, uh, what um, uh, Lindsey Graham thinks about anything. So war works for him, and Boris has concluded that war works for him too. It is uh, amazing to me, and it is uh, slightly bonkers that uh, something that seemed an obvious joke to us uh, three decades ago, Boris, as the new Churchill, is now taken seriously in the chancelleries of power from Kiev to Washington. 
Let us pause from that insane scenario for a moment. This weekend is the sesquicentennial of Enrico Caruso, born 150 years ago, February 25th, 1873. At number seven, the Via Santi Giovanni e Paolo in Naples, in the Kingdom of Italy. Uh, Signor Caruso was a magnificent lyric tenor and dramatic tenor. We play records on this show, all kinds of records. And if you like your digital downloads, your CDs, your LPs, 45s, 78s, wax cylinders, uh, Caruso was a huge part of making all that a going concern. He made his first recording in 1904, and they were massive sellers across the world at a time when it was not yet clear there was any mass market for listening to phonographs at home. When I was a young lad, my dad taught me an important lesson in the concept of value. We were in some little village and we popped into an antique store, which is really more of a junk shop. But they had a pile of old records and I was like flipping through them. And I said, hey, dad, look, Caruso. And then rather more furtively, hey, look, look how cheap it is. I bet it's worth a million. And he explained to me, no, uh, it would never be worth a million because Caruso sold millions and millions of copies of his records, so there will always be millions and millions out there. There is no scarcity of Caruso hit artifacts. And that's still true today. He's been digitally remastered and he has best-selling downloads. As you know, we play him a lot on the 100 Years Ago show and we covered his death in 1921 on the 100 Years Ago show. Uh, his death prompted Tin Pan Alley cash-in hits like uh, the song They Needed a Songbird in Heaven So God Took Caruso Away, which we've played. But Caruso cast such a long cultural shadow that he was still in inspiring hit songs in our own time. This number got to number two on the Italian hit parade just a decade ago. It was written by Lucio Dalla, who happened to be passing through Sorrento and decided to stay at the Excelsior Vittoria Hotel. Uh, they gave him the Enrico Caruso suite, where the great man had spent several of the last weeks of his life. And so, like any writer, Signor Dalla got interested in the subject and wound up doing this song, Words and Music. The lyric is a bit on the nose for my tastes. Uh, Caruso's feelings for a young lady student of his. I love you very much, very, 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 very much. Um, but when you set it to this music, it certainly connects with singers. If you go to all kinds of concerts, uh, classical recitals, uh, pop divas, all over the continent, there's a sporting chance this is going to pop up as the encore piece to thrill the crowd. It's been recorded by Julio Iglesias, Andrea Bocelli, Nana Muscuri, Mireille Mathieu, Lara Fabian. Uh, but I would say this is the chap who, more than any other, uh, planted it in the repertoire. Caruso was his great idol, and he too grew up to become a world-famous tenor. The singer is Luciano Pavarotti. The guitarist, for you rock and roll types, is Jeff Beck, who left us last month. And the title of the song is Caruso. Guido del mare luce e tira forte il vento 
una vecchia terrazza davanti al golfo di Surriere. Un uomo abbraccia una ragazza dopo che aveva pianto. Poi si schiarisce la voce e ricomincia il canto. E poi
Pavarotti loved Caruso and he loved that song, Caruso, by Lucio Dalla. Jeff Beck of the Yardbirds, hi-ho, silver lining on electric guitar. The long cultural reach of an Italian singer born in poverty in Naples a century and a half ago this weekend. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A live around the planet. It's 20 to 9. Greenwich meantime, something else uh, where you are. Let us get back uh, to your questions. Brian Van Blericom writes, this doesn't really have anything to do with today's topic. Well, it isn't really a topic of today. We talked a bit about Ukraine, but feel free to go for anything else you want to talk about. Uh, Though I continue to be glad that Mark is proving to be as resilient as ever. But does anyone else see Ofcom and immediately think Ingsoc? Ingsoc. Uh, being one of those totalitarian bodies from uh, George Orwell's 1984. Yeah, Ofcom are in the set. This is why I don't want to keep, you know, going on at Toby Young. But I'll tell you the, you know, I'll tell you the difference uh, because I put it in a letter to The Spectator. I think it's in this week's editor of The Spectator. Uh, And I've said it in various forms over the years. When I got targeted by the Canadian Human Rights Commission's, three of them, the federal one, the Ontario one, and the British Columbia. Um, And I had the first meeting, and uh, as I I said on this show, I think it was last week or the week before, uh, one of the suits at Rogers, which isn't an ideological corporation, um, said, well, you know, what's the end game here? And uh, I said, well, the end game here is to get the law repealed and the Canadian state out of the censorship business. And they all go, oh, okay. Uh, And as I said, they're not ideologues. They're not right wing. They're as mainstream as you can get. Here we had people who pose as Butch, you know, uh, Flopidopoulos at uh, GB News. What what is, I keep forgetting his real name. Angelus Flacidopoulos, is it? Or Flopidopoulos? I can't remember which one. Um, He decided to pre-surrender to Ofcom and... Uh, And uh, Toby supported the pre-surrender. Imagine the difference. Because I said on air, and this is probably what did for me, I said on air that my ambition is the same as it was in the Dominion of Canada. In Canada, my goal was to get Her Majesty's government, as it then was, out of the censorship business. And likewise, in London... My goal was to get His Majesty's government out of the censorship business. But that's what it is. And do you know what's interesting? People who read 1984 at school, who know 1984, nevertheless... I mean, from what I find interesting about... uh, One reason why they stretch out... This is like the whole bollocks with that cockamamie judge at the D.C. Superior Court who was trying to kill me a couple of weeks ago. Judge Irving. Yeah, I know, I know. If you piss on the judge, he can jail you for contempt. But I wouldn't be human if I didn't have contempt for Judge Irving of the D.C. Superior Court after that last stupid ruling of his uh, designed to assist uh, Michael E. Mann in killing me. Um, Anyway, enough of Judge Judge Irving. Uh, Once... If you don't have the goal, I said on air, 
uh, GB News, what I said all over TV and radio and newspapers in Canada. I want the Canadian state out of the censorship business. I want uh, the United Kingdom out of the censorship business. But people who've read 1984 think it's entirely normal uh, that the state should be decide what you can and can't say. And this is absolutely deranged. I mean, there are certain laws, there's laws of libel, which uh, I might yet have cause to remind Toby Young about. Um, there's, all, there's the traditional common law torts of defamation and so forth. But, um, but more and more people think way beyond. So the reason these joke investigations take a year, 18 months or whatever is because, as in the District of Columbia, the process... Uh, is the punishment, but also because just by being investigated, well, Stein's being investigated by Ofcom. They wouldn't be doing that unless he'd done something wrong. Oh, and the reason it's taking uh, a year, 18 months, is because he's done so much wrong. So just having these stupid investigations hanging over you imputes a taint to you. That's why, you know, Sane countries like uh, the America, like the United States before it tore up the Constitution uh, or before, you know, uh, Mark Levin and co spent so many times just uh, putting it on a big uh, on top of a big cherry cake in the middle of the room and then dancing around it singing gleefully that they forgot to notice it was no longer operative. But that's why functioning free societies have the right to a speedy trial. Um, but but what's changed? What's changed is that the the idea that there is disinformation, which basically means anything that is contra to the official narrative of the state bureaucrat. So it's explicitly statist, explicitly uh, about state power. The, there are all kinds of, oh, I don't think, oh, oh, Mark Stein interviewed Naomi Wolf. I don't think you should be allowed to do that. People have changed. People have changed. Ross Spence says, Mark, I pray for your speedy recovery when you can run a mile without getting very winded. Then I also pray for a silver lining from the stress-induced GB News Ofcom heart attacks. That silver lining would be if your recent boot from television might enable you to write at least one more of your essays and even one more book. You have a genius for writing, and you have such an entertaining and penetrating analysis of our times and the people in them. This is why I joined the Mark Stein Club when it started and will always remain a member. Well, I do have a book. I have a book coming out, I think, in the next two to three months, something like that. I don't. I find it hard to do columns anymore. People mock me when I do a column. <laughs> like the fall of Kabul, Okay. So I write The Fall of Kabul. Uh, as, I, uh, as, uh, as I was saying, as I said, as I wrote 10 years ago, uh, the, in the intervention in Afghanistan, 24 hours after the last Western soldier leaves, there will be no trace that we were ever there. And I was wrong, of course. It wasn't 24 hours. It was about 10 minutes after we left. And there is a slight trace uh, that we were ever there in that we left enough uh, machinery around uh, to make the Taliban the eighth or ninth most lavishly equipped uh, army on the planet. Uh, and it's nobody wants to be, as I said five years ago, as I said 10 years ago, as I said 20 years ago, and almost everything that's going on 
Jokes, jokes, jokes. We talk about, you know, the criminalization of jokes. When I first wrote about that, it was after I'd been sitting at the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal and I'd spent a day listening to an expert witness at the Robson Street Courthouse in Vancouver. This expert witness flown in from Philadelphia to discourse on my jokes. And I found this sufficiently weird to be reminded of uh, that uh, great Czech novel about post-war Czechoslovakia, The Joke by Milan Kundera. And I wrote a column about it. Uh, and I, I suggested, because of a couple of cases that were sort of percolate, some guy uh, at some medical magazine had been written a, uh, written an explanation of why, you know, your woman gets turned on uh, over a candlelit dinner on Valentine's Day or something like that. And he'd been forced out because of this Valentine's Day joke he put in a peer-reviewed journal. So there were a couple of things going on there. Now, this is all going back over a decade and now we have a situation where, as we discussed on the Mark Stein show with Dominique and uh, with Alexandra and with Leilani, where Stephen Fry uh, is being is uh, in trouble because he gave a speech, a cricket club after dinner speech, and he made a joke about Allahu Akbar and they want to cancel him. So the, the whole joke thing, but all these things... And I'm sorry about this, Ross. All these things, I could just rerun columns endlessly. Even the globalization thing. I, I remember doing this in the uh, Spectator back in the 90s, how people look on globalization, noting that what the Americans call globalization, the French called Americanization, and the Chinese think of very, very differently. Um, so it, you can't just keep saying, uh, you know, here's what I said in uh, 2008, uh, 1993, 1971. Litigious Muslims during the uh, during the human rights thing when he uh, rebuked one of the uh, one of the plaintiffs, uh, Tony Abbott in Australia. Uh, you know, I could go on. I could name. But in the end, when these guys have been in office, they have not moved fast enough to arrest. But let me just there's a there's a question where let me see if I can find it because it's a related thing here. Uh, let me, let me see. Uh, oh, by the way, I'll get this one out of the way before we get on to, uh, while I was talking about George Orwell and Insoc. 
James from Lancaster, Pennsylvania says, Mark, I've been an avid reader of the literary works and biographies of George Orwell for a long, long time, beginning when I first read 1984 as a teenager. That book had enormous influence on me and shaped my political outlook for my entire life. Would you be so kind as to share your views of George Orwell? And remember, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. No, I'm not going to share my views of George Orwell because I did two cracking... If you want my views of George Orwell, uh, listen to the intro or read the introductions to my serializations on this website of 1984 and Animal Farm, because we did both books. And the 19, I don't know about the Animal Farm one, but the 1984 one was a cracker. I was on really good form then. My voice hadn't been damaged as it has by various things, but the uh, the narration and the characterization I thought were cracker, even if nobody else does. And all those things, they begin not only with an introduction, uh, which is what I'd have to say about the book if I was to respond specifically to this question, but they all, each chapter also has, as we're going along, uh, we have the audio chapters each night, and then we have a little print intro on some of the footnoting and annotation on what's going on in the chapter. Uh, oh, speaking of which, Alison Castellina writes, Hi, Mark. So go and have a listen to them. I'll tell you. Here's, here's Alison from Castellina is going to put in a word for them, James. So stand by for this. Hi, Mark. In 1984, love your Cockney accents. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people didn't. Some people were not happy with the accents I gave to certain characters. But Alison says, in 1984, love your Cockney accents. The elite rewrite Kipling's works to make him more to their taste and to eradicate any mention of God. What do you think about publishers currently rewriting or updating imaginative works by dead authors who cannot fight back. Here's the point. Pop culture is crapped out. Look at it. Look at it. You know, the big, uh, the big, these are the big move. People are excited. People, uh, I, I made a cheap joke about, what was the cheap joke? Was it about Giant Man in the Avengers movie? And people said, oh, no, Giant Man wasn't in that Avengers movie. You know, I don't care. I'm thinking, when I think about Giant Man, I'm thinking of him as a seven-year-old boy. Giant Man was invented by Stanley, and I can't really remember much about it, except his girlfriend was called the Wasp and flew around his head, irritating him. Uh, I think she was a wealthy heiress, so she could get away with it because uh, he was a genius biochemist, but he was broke, and so she uh, provided all the dough. Anyway, I'm getting off track here because I hadn't thought about that since I was seven years old. Uh a giant Man was invented by, uh, and the Wasp, were invented by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in around 1964. That's the Marvel superheroes, early 60s. Then you have the uh, DC superheroes, Superman and Batman, from the late 30s. They're the biggest things in Hollywood. Uh, corporate storytelling about heroes who have been around either for 60 years or for 85 years. Uh, or unless you've got the James Bond, that's like a 70-year-old franchise, you know. 
Meanwhile, uh, we can't come up with anything. So all we can do is say, well, these guys, these dead guys, they came up with great characters, but unfortunately the characters are all a bit sexist and uh, transphobic and Islamophobic. So what if we rewrite them and take their vibrant, muscular uh, adjectives out and replace them with weedy, puny adjectives? This is what we're doing now. It's a disgrace. Uh, you know, you would think that the heirs to these estates would not go along. I know a little bit about literary estates because I used to, I've, have I, I don't know whether I've mentioned this, I, I was the, uh, I used to do the dramatic rights thing for the Society of Authors with respect to George Bernard Shaw and a few other writers. George Bernard Shaw, great playwright, He'd left his estate to the Society of Authors in London, and they asked me uh, if they could send me scripts because, you know, My Fair Lady obviously was a big hit from about, uh, based on Pygmalion. And uh, people were thinking, oh, what's going to be the next My Fair Lady for me? So they'd be always wanting to adapt his plays into musicals. And I... Uh, I, the, the lady at the Society of Authors I dealt with, she was absolutely lovely, really lovely lady, one of the nicest. I don't want to talk too much about her because I'll get a bit teary-eyed because she died far too young. But I learned a lot then about, you know, the, con the considerations you make when you're going to let some guy license an adaptation of your work. These people are betraying the intent of their author, of the authors. But if you, you know, if you've got the rights to Roald Dahl, you're thinking, well, you know, I'll, uh, I'll license them to Netflix or whatever and I'll make a ton of dough. And, it, you know, and that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is this. We're crapped out. We can't come up with anything that has... Because... The minute you start making considerations, oh, I wonder this might trigger somebody who's trans, you can't write under those circumstances. You couldn't, you couldn't do any kind of writing under those circumstances if you're thinking about somebody taking hypothetical offense. And yet, so, so you say, oh, well, uh, if you like Giant Man and the Wasp, but you'd rather they were lesbians... Go, uh, instead of turning Giant Man and the Wasp into a lesbian or making James Bond trans or wrecking Roald Dahl, why don't you create some? Why don't you go off in the corner and do like all these guys did for no money at Timely Comics in 1936 or whatever and come up with uh, something of your own? Or why don't, you, why don't you do what writers do, you know, before Netflix came along? Uh, and they'd sit in their garrets and they'd come up with this. Oh, no, you know, we can't come up with a story anymore. We can't come up with any characters anyone's interested. So we just have to screw over the old characters. We're done. It's another sign that this is a dead civilization. We'll actually have more on that from another sort of angle uh, in, a, uh, in, in a little bit. What was the one? That's not what I was. What was I looking for? Was that the one I was looking for? Uh, I don't know whether that was the one I was looking for. Um, Sean from Alaska says, <laughs> sorry about that. I uh, got a bit distracted. Sean from Alaska says, hi, Mark. 
Uh, society keeps crumbling around us on a daily basis. I keep waiting for the pendulum to swing back, but no such luck. At this point, do we fight back or get out of the way? Hide a few old books in the rafter, keep our heads down for a generation and find the best condiment for crickets in the meantime? No, because the, uh, as I said, the, you know, Ava, and again, this, I don't want to keep bringing up Toby Young, <laughs> but I find it amazing that Ava, uh, or, you know, Ava or Alexandra, or uh, Dominique, who are like their their ages combined don't add up to Toby Young's age, but they're not. Uh, you, they're the ones who are going to be. They're going to have to live most of their lives under the hell that we have made of the Western world, and they're not going to enjoy it. Which is why Ava has more courage about these. You know, Toby Young wants to just reach his accommodations with Ofcom uh, in the hope that uh, GB News, which is completely broken, is, can't, isn't going to be able to survive, whether it's Ofcom compliant or not, because nobody's watching it, uh, you know, can stagger on for a bit. Whereas Ava just says uh, wants to form the sod off party, which actually I may well do. Um, no, it's not. It, there isn't going to be the swing of a pendulum. You know what? These crazy people, and as I said, the, when you listen to Klaus Schwab, when you listen to Tony Blair, when you listen to Bill Gates, to what they say in public, and then imagine what they say in the bar afterwards, you know that what they're planning for us is going to be bonkers. So when the pendulum swings, uh, they're going to loop the pendulum uh to the, to the end of the whatchamacallit, and it's not going to be swinging back anytime soon. So if you don't resist it now, it's, not, it's going to be a lot harder to resist it in the future. Chris Davis says, Mark, is apathy or ignorance the biggest factor in the continued decline of our civil liberties, notably freedom of speech and movement? Well, apathy is always a big part in politics. I always used to, I used to love that line of... Uh, uh, Viscount Whitelaw, the late Viscount Whitelaw, Willie Whitelaw, who was Mrs. Thatcher's deputy and a lovely old school Tory. And as uh, Willie Whitelaw and as Mrs. Thatcher always used to say, every prime minister should have a Willie. And uh, certainly no chance of that with Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. But uh, anyway, be that as it may, uh, he, he Willie Whitelaw had these accidentally great lines. So uh, at one point, he accused the Labour Party of going around the country stirring up apathy, which is a fabulous line, the idea of stirring up apathy. But apathy is a big factor in politics. It, politics is super boring. The people who are in politics are generally boring and People would rather watch and attend to other things. But there's something beyond that here, which is, again, to go back. I don't want to, uh, you know, James from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, was asking me what I thought of 1984. And I said, listen to the intro to my adaptation. Um, but one of the, the one things, obvious things about uh, 1984 is when uh, he talks about how people are increasingly scared of their children because the children are part of these youth cadres and will report on their parents if they 
don't have the correct views in any uh, and, and so forth. And that's actually largely come to pass in many respects. That, uh, and this is way beyond apathy, because when you talk about apathy, you're, you're, I think you're talking about something like, uh, you know, uh, Nixon's silent majority or whatever, that out there, there are millions and millions of solid, uh, middle-aged, middle-class, solid citizens uh, who agree with you, but just it's sort of too apathetic and not interested in politics. So they don't really know that they're in agreement with you. And I think we've actually moved beyond that now to where there is a significant sliver of the populace um, who have been who have been successfully socially re-engineered. After all, if you can so unmoor somebody that they don't know whether they're a boy or a girl, what can't you do to them? And I think that's actually it, that there's, we're up against, you know, people talk about common sense, and as I always say, common sense presupposes that we've got something in common. But uh, increasingly, uh, there is a huge gulf between the world as these new shock troops of utopia see it, and as... Uh, as, you know, what they call normies, normals or whatever, say it. Um, <laughs> Sandra Robinson says, good evening, Mark. As mobility, freedom and resources are curtailed, should we raise a banner and head to a rallying fortress? I'm not sure where the fortress would be. Uh, again, that's why I think it's better to take a stand and fight wherever you happen to be. And it doesn't matter uh, whether you happen to be in a totally crazy place like California or in somewhere relatively sane, such as parts of Central or Eastern Europe. Uh, but wherever you are, take the stand. It's not going to go well if little bits of the map get picked off one by one. Uh, and that is, uh, that's not something... Um, I'm uh, Mark Williams. Uh, this this is not this is a bad story uh, question to end on. Mark Williams says, Mark, not related to the topic, but why is Fox News broadcasting the Alex Murdo trial live eight hours per day? There are hundreds of people murdered every day in America, and there are a lot more important events that should be covered. It's as if people prefer a soap opera to hard hitting news coverage. I'd like your take on this, Mark Williams. If you're not American, you probably don't really know about it. This is some guy in South Carolina uh, who is on trial for killing his wife and his child. That's one reason people like it, because it's a, you know, it's an inter-family. People can understand that. They know the normal emotions one has to one's wife and child. And so they're interested uh, as to why this would go the way it did. But it's also that he went and he put in, uh, you know, he, he he went to some trouble to set up the conditions by which, allegedly, he could murder them. And, uh, and, and the estranged wife contacted a friend before she left to go and see him and said, oh, this all sounds a bit fishy. So again, it, and that's, so we're in Agatha Christie, uh, territory here 
which is always interesting. I mean, why do pe- people are totally bored by if you live in New Hampshire, most of the, we have very few murders, and but the ones we do have aren't really terribly interesting. You know, some guy this time of year, some guy gets a little stir crazy, gets a little cabin fever and uh, winds up shooting his wife or whatever. That's a tragedy, but it's not particularly interesting. For it to be interesting, there have to be body-in-the-library elements like an English country house murder, uh, which, which, which there are to a degree in this. But it's the same, the bigger picture, and this is where, uh, this is the important thing to remember for uh, my friends on the right. It's the same reason people... Uh, in across the ocean, uh, fascinated by the Harry and Meghan crap, or purport to be, people like stories, and this trial is a story. You get to know the alleged killer. You get to know his alleged victims. Stories are the narratives we follow. Are the narrative that that's a, as basic a thought as anyone could have. So you can have statistics like on, you know, COVID injuries or whatever you want or demographic decline or any of the things we talk about, but people aren't interested. If there's a story, people always prefer the story to the big picture with the numbers and the trends and the graphs. And that's why Fox is covering a guy who supposedly offed his wife and child, and why it's not covering, say, the trillions in debt that will destroy the United States or the rise of China or whatever. People like stories. So if you care about, you know, vaccine injuries or whatever, figure out a way to put it in a story so that people are interested uh, in it. That's, that's, that's what it is. They can relate they're not murderers, but they can relate to the uh, and they are interested in this because it is the form of a story in a way that the rise of China or the corruption in Ukraine doesn't have the form of the story. Uh, OK, I'll have a, let's have a little bit more music to close on. But Bacharach uh, died uh, a fortnight ago. Um, I played, among other things, to mark his passing, my version with uh, my chums Emma, Mary and Janet of uh, What's New Pussycat? Remember, we took it out of waltz time and put it into 4-4. And several listeners emailed to say, come on, Stein, didn't you say a few days ago that people had expressed a preference for you warbling in French because your singing is less traumatizing to other persons if it's in a language they don't uh, understand? Um, okay, okay, back to... I'm missing my enforced sojourn in France, and given the stresses placed upon me by Angelus Flopidopoulos of GB News and Judge Irving of the D.C. Superior Court uh, and a few other persons anxious to bring on a third and fatal heart attack, um, I've been having a grand everything-must-go massive store-wide clearance sale of my French bottom drawer. I like that's a good English expression, isn't it? Bottom drawer. What is uh, bottom drawer in French? I mean, tiroir de la derrière? <laughs> Possibly not. Anyway, uh, Louis Enneve was a marvellous parolier who did the French lyrics to a lot of Anglo standards. April in Paris, Nature Boy, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, Goody Goody. 
and in particular, a lot of Cole Porter. I've got you under my skin, begin the begin, and this one, which happens to be our current song of the week from last Sunday. It's up there at our homepage, and several of you complain, oh, no, it's a print essay song of the week. I like to hear the audio serenade radio version. Okay, well, here's an audio version uh, for you of my song of the week from my... uh, Tiroir de la Derrière. You know, when I was in the ICU on the third day or so, I was still all clamped up to the electrodes, but I was a little more stabilized. And so the Provencal nurses were trying to engage me in conversation just to stimulate me. And uh, they were amazed to, uh, don't start tittering, not stimulate me in that way. They were perfectly capable of, uh, they were very stimulating as uh, Provencal nurses go. Uh, And um, they were amazed to discover how many fragments of French lyrics uh, I had in my head, sometimes from songs they knew, but with words they'd forgotten. Essaimons les arômes. Si do. Fabulous line. Lines like that. And they couldn't figure out why my being Anglo uh, at all. I knew all this stuff. Um, they referred to me among themselves. I like this as le Canadien because I was the only Canadien in the joint. And I'd hear them outside the room saying, ah oui, le petit déjeuner pour le Canadien. Uh, but they started sort of doing a pop quiz on me with French lyrics. And eventually, if one asked me a medical question and I appeared not to comprehend what was said, another would say, ah, sing it to him, then he'll get it. Uh, but this one is for the, uh, this one is for the uh, nurses who saved my life, night and day, in that hospital, they were the ones. Rien que toi 
tu le joies et tu te l'ennuies au plus profond de moi. Un faible qui me consume et ne boule que pour toi. Mon chemin ne finira que quand tu me permettras de t'aimer toujours. Nuit et jour. From me to you, tout le jour, toute la nuit, as you sing it, tout le jour, toute la nuit, as you would say it. Yours truly, with the band and the ladies, and music by Cole Porter, Parole Française par Louis Enneve, tout le jour, toute la nuit, a rather literal translation of night and day. Uh, we gave it a kind of 1970s adult contemporary feel, as they say at Billboard magazine. Night and day, you are the one. That's how I feel about Audrey. L'infirmière de Jean's who saved my life. Rick McGuinness's Saturday movie date, Tal Backman on Sunday, and then more of the Mark Stein Show with Ava, Leilani, Alexandra, and much more all coming up at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free, stay well. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.
rights reserved.